Hi, I'm Dr. James Ahrens, the ADHD author and veterinarian. Welcome to Podcast 34, Ostrich Quarantine Station. When word got out that I was an ostrich veterinarian, I began to get calls for my help with the birds, many of them from out of our area code. One call came from a fellow with the family fleeing South Africa. He was eager to set up an ostrich egg importation quarantine station to bring ostriches to the United States. These stations are required by the USDA to keep foreign diseases from entering the states. Despite my newfound near-celebrity status, or most likely because of it, my confidence in my ability to give the ostrich people things they needed did not match the hype. Because of this lack of confidence in myself, I turned down speaking engagements that would have enhanced my popularity. I was overcome with self-doubt. I had started the wheels in motion, but the lack of belief in myself was making it hard to fully capture the opportunities that were opening in front of me. My uncertainty was eased when we hired Robin to help Mary oversee the burgeoning hatching business. Robin was given our guest room in the upstairs of the barn until she could sort out her own failing marriage. The upstairs was also my office. Born with a keen sense of inquisitiveness, Robin became my ADHD cheerleader during these early ostrich days, helping me write code late into the evening for an ostrich hatch management program I was developing. I also brought Robin to the Los Angeles quarantine station with me. I felt like the boy from the country in this foreign situation, and I leaned on both Robin and Mary for support. Country. 
He left his home when he was young. But from the country, he loved the sun. Chapter 44 Ostrich Quarantine Station In the winter of 1993, I was called out to the Central Valley to check on ostrich chicks recently released from a quarantine station. I needed to check on their soundness and future marketability. The people spoke in an accent I thought was Australian. I brought Robin with me. She was Mary's primary helper at the ranch. As we went through the hundred or so chicks, I ran through my usual checklist watching each bird, making sure it walked in a straight line. I checked the head, looking for abnormal discharges from the eyes, nostrils, and oral cavity, palpating the abdomen to make sure an impaction was not developing in the stomach. I listened with my stethoscope for average heart rate, and focused on the lung sounds, listening for abnormal pulmonary noises, suggesting pneumonia. Finally, I checked the legs to make sure they were growing straight. I was not sure what the owners needed from me, but they seemed pleased with the findings I gave them. A few days later, I received a call from the group. They had another ostrich project located in the middle of Los Angeles. They wanted me to interview for another job opportunity. These people were not from Australia. They were from South Africa. And the looming thunderstorm of anti-apartheidism was driving many wealthy white families out of the country, fleeing with as much capital as they could take, their homeland repatriated to the people they stole it from generations earlier. South Africa is a real bastion of ostrich farming. In fact, the most beautifully feathered ostriches came from South Africa, and these birds were known as a South African black ostrich, 
Their feathers were used on ladies' hats and clothing at the turn of the 20th century. I was discussing life in South Africa with Manny, one of the fellows who hired me. He told me there was a level of severe poverty among the black people in South Africa. It wasn't uncommon for freshly poured concrete, waiting to be hardened into sidewalks and driveways, to be stolen during the night, while it was still soft and moist. In the darkness of the evening, these poor people brought still wet concrete and buckets to their houses to lay out their walkways. Manny talked about the disgusting thievery and wondered out loud about the future of South Africa. Robin and I flew down to Los Angeles, waiting over an hour to be picked up. I thought we were important to them, but with no notice, no message, I was beginning to wonder if we would have to find a flight home. Hey, someone yelled, honking the horn. It was Manny. Gathering our belongings, we piled into his car. Now adept at driving on the U.S. side of the road, Manny drove smoothly through the stranglehold of vehicles on the Harbor Freeway, aggressively weaving in and out of traffic like a taxi driver. Manny and his extended family hoped to ensure their future raising ostriches from eggs imported from South Africa and Israel. Although not previously involved in ostrich raising, they gambled on it, because they were more familiar than most Americans with this emerging livestock industry, which showed great promise. One hurdle they needed guidance with was the notion of the quarantine station. The U.S. government quarantines imported animals to protect us from the introduction of foreign diseases, and the USDA imposes stringent guidelines on this importation process. Africa has lots of conditions not present in other parts of the world. Besides worrying about the usual invaders, anthrax, mad cow disease, bovine tuberculosis, brucellosis, equine encephalomyelitis, equine infectious anemia, exotic Newcastle disease, and foot and mouth disease, there are other, more rare diseases in Africa. African horse sickness and African swine fever are both spread by a virus and there is heartwater disease, which is transmitted through ticks and may be carried by birds. These are all easily transmissible, serious problems not seen yet in the U.S. But importing eggs can be equally dangerous. Viruses love to grow inside eggs. In fact, viruses are cultured in egg ingredients and produced artificially in the lab. Hence, quarantine stations are sanctioned. They need to be inspected and licensed by USDA personnel, and many operators feel better having a certified vet on staff. The strange thing about these types of stations is that they are usually inside warehouses, tucked amid industrial-type activities in the city's underbelly. The eggs, with their potential viral bombs, are not located in the middle of the wastelands of Texas or Nevada. They do not have acres of space surrounded by perimeter fencing, instead operating next to major transportation hubs in areas most prone to quick and easy dissemination of an out-of-control virus. But maybe it's okay to harbor livestock pathogens in the middle of human population centers, far away from the farms. I hope these pathogens don't develop a flavor for people. The typical quarantine building needs to be self-contained. It is divided into a small entrance area and a much larger quarantine area. The quarantine area must be isolated from the entrance area as well as the outside. A person walks through the front area into a shower area. Street clothes are left in the locker there. After showering, one selects freshly washed clothes inside the quarantine area, spending the rest of the day working with the quarantine chicks and eggs. Also, personnel must shower before leaving. Any waste generated inside must be stored within the quarantine area until a USDA inspector lifts quarantine, certifying the birds are free of communicable disease. If a suspicious problem arises, the entire operation is shut down, and hazmat teams come in to destroy the eggs and chicks 
and disinfect the premises. Manny needed help because his operation was experiencing fading chick disease. It was happening to the other stations as well, and these expats couldn't afford to be shut down. Working inside the quarantine station, looking for possible infectious reasons for the chick's failure to thrive, I used the same techniques we used at home, performing necropsies on dead babies to see why they died. Mary sent down my microbiology incubator and plate system to screen any dead birds for bacteriological agents. As I was prohibited from sending any samples outside until quarantine was lifted, I did the lab work in-house. But even with my lab work, I couldn't find the smoking gun. I felt something else besides infection was the problem. Eventually, we decided the indoor situation was too artificial an environment to give these birds the start they needed. And I was privy to secret information. A handful of birds, not more than ten, had surreptitiously been brought from quarantine and driven to a ranch in the Central Valley. They were all doing fine. Similar to the wet chick problem, raising the hatchlings in this artificial environment was causing the fade problem. At Shadowmere, we were putting eggs inside incubators too humid for adequate egg respiration, unlike the shallow, arid, dry deserts the hatchlings evolved in. And here in quarantine, the youngsters had a problem thriving after a successful hatch because there was too little sunlight inside these warehouses. Once again, I discovered the problem was caused by incorrect incubation parameters, and the unnatural indoor environment of the quarantine stations only added to the problem. It was more of an environmental problem than an infectious one. Robin and I flew back to Creston on New Year's evening, 1994. In the early months of 1994, I received a call from a large ostrich ranch in Santa Inez. During the phone call, I realized this ranch was the same one Nancy and I visited during the Arabian horse popularity peak. It was over five years since the Reagan tax laws changed and the horse ranch now belonged to Wolfgang, a successful German film producer. The pristine white fences now held a million dollars worth of ostriches instead of a million dollars in Arabian horses. Wolfgang bought the ranch to raise ostriches, and he wanted me on his staff. I arrived in the late afternoon. I was intrigued and flattered. What a difference. Before I was a spectator, now I was a guest invited to stay the night. Wow, what a step up. I was served ostrich for dinner. Wolfgang's wife roasted the entire bird, but this one was turkey size, not full grown. She baked it like a turkey, with the skin brown and crackly. We talked and drank after dinner, and I slept in a separate guest house. It reminded me of the guest quarters at Hearst Castle, but the decorations were much less ostentatious. I slept on a pad on the Spanish tile floor. Evidently, they were still moving in. In the morning, Wolfgang took me out to his ostrich facilities and introduced me to Virginia, the one in charge of the ostrich operations. While listening to them, I realized she convinced Wolfgang she had as much talent as any vet, plus Virginia had a way with birds, and knew what they needed. She was currently feeding them sprouting alfalfa from her Waterworld alfalfa sprouting machine. I thought the idea was a pure gimmick but it seemed to work. Wolfgang never second-guessed her. Well, why did you call me down to interview me, I was thinking. The answer came during salary negotiations. Wolfgang didn't want to pay me what a real vet wanted because he wanted his own vet on the premises. I had hoped to be able to run the medical side of things and refused his low-ball offer. End of chapter. Thank you for listening. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book or an e-book as well as an 11-disc audiobook set or can be downloaded from the audiobook site Spotify. 
More details are on my website, jeadvm.com.